I'm Tavid Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavid Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both virtual and in-person settings that will help you improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. To find out how we can help you today with your leadership challenges and discover your untapped opportunities, visit our website at tavinasir.com. And now, let's meet my guest for this episode, Jim Hewling. You can apply the law of diminishing returns to your team the same way you can to physics. Give them enough things to focus on and you'll guarantee they hit none of the targets that they're after. There are many responsibilities that come with leadership. One of the most obvious ones is having to develop strategies for how the organization will succeed in reaching its goals. But if formulating strategies is such a critical function of today's leadership, why are so many initiatives getting lost amid the daily demands we all face over the course of our work week? According to my guest, Jim Hewling, the problem is not with the strategy itself, but with how leaders go about executing it. For the past 40 years, Jim has served in various corporate leadership roles, from Fortune 500 organizations to privately held companies. And I've invited him to come on my show so we could talk about the book he co-authored, The Four Disciplines of Execution, Achieving Your Wildly Important Goals. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, Tenvir. I, I am so excited today. You know, um, I've done some podcasts this year, but I've really had yours circled with a red pen on my calendar, uh, just waiting for today. I've heard a lot about you. I've listened to some episodes and man, what an honor it is to be on your show today. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it, Jim. And, and thank you so much for the kind words. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're excited to be on this show and to talk to me about your book, because I was actually very interested after reading your book to talk to you about it, because in your book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, your co-writers and you share a fascinating model for how leaders can be more successful achieving their goals by changing how they approach execution. But before we delve into that model, I'd love it if you could share why so many leaders encounter difficulties when executing on their strategic plans or goals. What's creating this friction between the vision they've communicated about what they want their organization to achieve and what their workforce actually ends up doing? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of ways of thinking about the answer to it. But honestly, for all the people listening to your great podcast today, I think this might be the very biggest question on their mind. You know, uh, Tanvir, my, my own experience as a CEO for a number of years, but now having worked with over 70,000 leaders in the last 11 years, is that we all get a kind of false confidence when we make a plan. In fact, uh, my writing partner and I, Chris McChesney, we love to call it the planning high. You know, just mm. like the more planning you do, the more excited you get, and you're you're sort of caught up, you know, in your own vision. It's like a it's like a Steven Spielberg movie in your head. You know, everything is going to go great. This is the year we're going to do it, you know. And then all of a sudden you walk out to your team and you try to get them to do those very things that you've now, you've been envisioning for a month or so during planning. And that's when the real struggle starts to happen. You know, this, this transition between strategy and execution 
It may not sound like a big deal until you try to do it. Uh, there's a quote I like a lot. I hope you won't mind me throwing it in here, half for humor and half because it's perfectly appropriate. Uh, Mike Tyson used to always say, everybody has a fight plan, you know, until I hit him in the face. <laughs> uh, and, and that's honestly, that's the way execution is. You know, leaders do their planning. They get ready to go. They envision people doing it well. And then when they try to get people to do it, they run headfirst into what we think is the single biggest obstacle to getting things done. And, and I don't know if you'll be, you'll be enlightened or underwhelmed by this answer because it's incredibly simple. But the answer is, it's because the people on your team are so busy. In other words, you think about everybody that works in your organization has got a job. In fact, if you ask them, they've got one and a half jobs. You know, they're working harder than they've ever worked. They're busy all the time. They're, they're sort of redlining. But everything they're doing is really part of the day-to-day. -day. It's, what, it's what it takes to run the organization, to keep it moving. We like to call that the whirlwind. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it's a perfect name, but it's a good name because when you're over in the whirlwind, and Tamir, I'm, I'm guessing you can relate to this quite well. Uh, everything feels urgent. You know, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, I got to get this done. I got to get that done. I got to do that. I got to I got to return these calls. I got to write this report. I got to turn in this document by the end of the day. You know, uh, I've got all these things to do. And they all feel so urgent that when you as a leader come in with your brand new strategy that requires people to do new things, their first reaction is, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, where do you think I have the time or the capacity to do it? So, so in the end of it, the, the real struggle is this idea between honestly what's important in terms of strategy, moving the organization forward, and what feels urgent, the thing I got to do right now. And that's the conflict. That's what keeps people from being able to execute is they, they're unable to transcend this dilemma of the, the urgent versus what's important. You know, Jim, one of the reasons I wanted to start our conversation with this is because just a few days ago, I moderated a roundtable discussion with a group of supply chain leaders, and we talked about what the challenges we're seeing right now with the supply chain reveals as necessary changes they, they need to make in their industry. And one of the leaders pointed out that they need to shift to a higher level of collaboration between suppliers, carriers, and distributors. And I asked him, how does he see that change happening in his organization? As it's not just a matter of changing SOPs, but it's people's behaviors and how they communicate and what they communicate. And his reply was just that they had no choice but to do it. So, so <laughs> I think this reflects exactly what you're pointing out here, where leaders understand this need for what you call in your book breakthroughs, like what this supply chain leader was stating about how to address this issue and how to it's going to not only impact today, but it's really going to create benefits in the future. But then there's disconnect between that understanding and how they view it within the context of their day-to-day -day reality. Oh, yeah, it's exactly right. It, and, and in fact, if you don't mind, if I jump in right there, two things happen right at that moment. So if you're, first of all, you know, anybody who's a leader of anything, anybody who's trying to get anything done, whether it's the school PTA or a multi-billion dollar corporation, you know, you're going to have the same challenge. And, and there's two things that really seem to affect a lot of leaders. And I, and I say this as a person who's lived through it. So I'm not, I'm not standing on the mountaintop, you know, shouting down at everybody else how they ought to do things. I'm really down here in the valley where all this happens as well. That's one of the reasons I feel like I understand it well. But the number one, 
number one thing that happens is many leaders think it's not their job to tell people how to do something. They just tell them what to do, right? So, mm -hmm. so a lot of leaders have a kind of false perception that as soon as the outcomes for the year have been clearly defined, well, the rest is up to all of you. You know, I've even heard leaders say, that's why we hired all of you. So you come up, come on, you figure out how to do it. You know, that's not my job. My job is to tell you what. Um, and it turns out, frankly, that when you give people something new to do, some new outcome, that new outcome requires new behaviors, and they don't always know what those new behaviors are, right? So the first problem is really one of clarity. Um, uh, the how part is often neglected or sometimes is left as a total mystery, you know, to be solved by the team. So though that's difficult. But, but I want to tell you, that's not nearly as difficult as the second problem. The second problem is even when they know the new thing they should do, the new behavior, the new standard, the new level of quality that this new outcome is going to require, it's hard to do it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you total agreement with me, but I think you are. Total agreement. Total agreement. If you wake up in the morning and your responsibility today is to get people to change their behavior, 50% of people would just go back to bed. It's mm. so hard. It's hard to get people to change behavior. You've got your own understanding, really, if you think about it, that changing your own behavior is incredibly hard. Well, now multiply that. Suppose you're a leader and you're supposed to get 25 other people to change their behavior and not only change it, but all change it the same way, you know, so that we do this new level together. How do you do that? Well, that that in essence becomes the reason that execution is so difficult. And uh, frankly, if you don't mind me adding this as a personal note, I think it's one of the reasons it's never taught anywhere. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of major universities. I've never found one yet that had a class on execution in the curriculum. But if you open the open the uh, guidebook, you know, there are 27 courses on market strategy and branding and all that, but not a single course on execution. How are you actually going to get all that done? Uh, and, I, and I think part of the reason is it's just so hard. It's, it, you know, there's just no resource available to show you how to do it. And, and it's one of the reasons I think Chris and Sean and I felt so compelled to write this book to, you know, not that we have the only answer, but we were excited that we have an answer to this incredible dilemma. How do you get a group of people to do the different things that different levels of outcome actually require them to do? And and we hope we hope we've made a meaningful contribution to that uh, in the 16 languages that that book is now translated in, and uh, uh, I presume I presume millions of copies, you know, that that are in the hands of people today. Well, I can tell you from reading your book that I really think you do have a, a fascinating answer to this issue that leaders face with execution. And I think now that we have this understanding, it's a great now opportunity for us to explore those four disciplines of execution or what you call the 4DX model in your book. And the four disciplines of execution you write about are focus on the wildly important, act on the lead measures, keep a compelling scorecard, and create a cadence of accountability. So let's start with the first principle of focus on the wildly important, where you make the case that leaders need to shift from having three to five key goals they want the organization to achieve and instead focus on a single wildly important goal. Now, as you write in your book, Jim, all of us have to deal with what you mentioned earlier, the whirlwind. That is those various tasks and demands we need to address over the course of our workday and work week. But 
While we do have to deal with those demands of our everyday workday, leaders also need to narrow their focus onto this wildly important goal. So, Jim, how do we balance those requirements, those things we need to get done to put out various fires or complete time-sensitive tasks, while at the same time creating space for us to work on this wildly important goal? Yeah, gosh, what a great question. You know, honestly, this question, if we could if we could give your listeners the answer, and let's hope we do it right now, uh, you know, you, you might have the whole podcast episode would be, uh, uh, the ROI would be 100% on that episode today. <laughs> that's such a challenge, right? So, mm. so let's start at the very beginning. First of all, you said three to five goals. And, mm. and uh, Tanvir, I have to tell you, I, I'd love to consult with an organization that only had five goals. Because yeah. <laughs> when I walk into an organization, it's more like 50 goals or, or OKRs or whatever they, you know, whatever they're calling them this year, but measurable outcomes that teams have to produce. Um, I feel fortunate if I start with a smaller number because <laughs> uh, the world, you know, is in this interesting place. And, and in fact, I just make one more comment about this and then let's go right to the heart of your question is, you know, one of the biggest challenges in leadership is that that we think, honestly, anything we can measure ought to be a goal. So, mm. so if we've got a metric, you know, we've got a metric for a number of sales calls necessary to make a sale. Um, and, and we are actually tracking that. I've never known a leader who can resist saying, okay, let's get that up from last year. You know, let's get 15% more this year. You know, <laughs> so, so first of all, we not only have goals, but we have so many goals. And then the bigger problem is we try to attack all of them at the same level of priority. And, and I don't know if this is an old expression and I'm an older guy, maybe you've heard it or maybe you haven't, but, but it's still a great truth today that if you approach your goals as though everything is priority one, the reality of your execution is that nothing is priority one. In other words, if you, if you spread the time and talent and energy of your team across enough simultaneous objectives, they'll get nothing done. <laughs> now, they'll work really hard and they'll be really stressed because they're always looking at numbers they can't reach, but they won't actually hit any of those targets. You can, you can apply the law of diminishing returns to your team the same way you can to physics. Give them enough things to focus on and you'll guarantee they hit none of the targets that they're after. So, so the very first discipline, is the one that sounds so incredibly simple, Tim Beer, and, it, and it's unbelievably hard to do. In fact, anybody writing into your show who says it's easy, uh, I, wanna, I want to humbly suggest that's an indication they've never actually done it. Because when you look at 10, 15, 20, 25 OKRs, and your task is to say, of all those goals, which one matters most? In other words, which one represents a real breakthrough? And we're still going to do all of them, but all the rest of them take second place so that this one can truly be in first place. You ask a leader to do that, and the first thing they want is three days in a retreat to think about it. <laughs> you know, because I'm joking a little bit, but, you know, because nobody really knows the answer to that. And also, it's scary. You know, suppose you have 10, you know, high priority outcomes you're supposed to achieve. And we come in saying, if you want the greatest possible results, get really clear about which one of those 10 is your main one, the one that matters most, you suddenly get really afraid about the other nine, you know? But thinking that you're approaching all 10 of them at priority one level is really an illusion. 
It's just an illusion that's hard to give up. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's approaching all 10 of those goals at the priority one level because you can't do that. There's no way. So the courageous way that the four disciplines begins is by asking a leader at every level, the CEO all the way to the leader of a frontline team to decide the single most important outcome, the one that represents a breakthrough. What is that going to be? And then the others don't go away. We try to be really clear about that. Uh, the others just move gently into second place. And this one stays as number one. And, and if you're doing this across a large number of teams or a large number of people, um, the, the, the other part of it that needs to be said is all of those goals at the level below the CEO need to line up to what the CEO says is the most important outcome. You know, so if this is the year of the customer, for example, then every team in the organization needs to find a way to making a contribution to that ultimate outcome of this. This is the year of the customer, you know, and, and next year it's the year of market share. So every team is challenged to say, how do we how do we make a significant contribution to growing the market share of our organization? But in all cases, the part that's hard but easy to say, <laughs> to sit across a boardroom table with a leader and say, of the 10 goals you have, which one is most important? Tell me now. And literally nobody can answer that question. Um, so that's where we start with their journey of execution is by deciding what represents a true breakthrough versus what is simply an important outcome that we need to achieve. So now, Jim, that we have this understanding of what a wildly important goal is, I'd like to talk to you about the second discipline of execution, act on the lead measures. Of course, in order to act on it, we first need to understand what a lead measure is. So to start things off, Jim, could you explain what a lead measure is and how it differs from what you call a lag measure? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I love this question. I love that you're asking this question because <laughs> Uh, this terminology really helps a leader. So, so here it is in the most simple terms of all. Um, almost without exception, the measurement of achievement of a goal is a lagging measure. So think about it for a minute. Um, when do you know your, your uh, February profit number in a typical organization? March, right? In other words, you, you, you don't know when it is. Well, well when do you know the uh, true satisfaction engagement level of your customers? Well, you know, usually three months after you've sent out the big survey and gotten all the data back and analyzed. So, so these are examples of measurements that are critically important, but they are always historical. In other words, we call them lagging measures because by the time you get them, they are historical and even worse, you can't change them. <laughs> you know, in every leader you've talked to, Tampere, in the organizations, whatever they run, the things that you've done yourself, you, you sort of open that email, you know, with last month's profit number and you, you find yourself saying a little prayer before you open the email, you know, like, please, please, please. But, but the reason you're doing that is because you can't fix it. It's there. It's history, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a lagging measure. Well, lagging measures in and of themselves, this is going to be a surprising statement for your listeners to hear, I think, are not true drivers of human performance. And, and I'm just 
I want to say courageously for everybody that's, you know, driving their car or taking notes or whatever they're doing. Um, this is really um, a surprising thing to hear somebody say. Uh, if you're a sales leader, you're used to talking about total sales all the time. You know, uh, if you're a quality leader, you're used to talking about overall quality. If you're the safety manager, you're used to talking about over, you know, days without accidents. You're, you're always looking at this big number. But it doesn't drive human performance because it's always in the past. It's a little bit like trying to drive your car by looking only in the rearview mirror. It doesn't work. <laughs> and, and I live in a big city, and I think there are people who really do drive that way, Tanvir. But it, <laughs> but it doesn't work. It doesn't get you where you want to go. You have to be able to look forward. So the looking forward is what we call a leading measure. Now, a leading measure quite frankly, is probably the most breakthrough idea in the entire four disciplines methodology. Um, because it simply says that you identify those few actions that are the true drivers of the outcome you want. And if you take them to a new level, they uh, that change alone will produce new results. So in other words, a leading measure is the measurement of the few actions that produce the greatest result. So one of the most fascinating aspects of implementing the four disciplines, and, and frankly, one of my favorites, is once we've gotten a leader clear about the outcome that matters most, we can go headfirst into, now how are we gonna do that? And Tanvira never fails, and I say this in a good, respectful way, every leader says, well, here's the 117 things we're gonna need to do in order to achieve that goal. <laughs> And then we have a moment as teachers of this methodology to say, okay, great. It's good that you're comprehensive, but out of the 117, what are the two or three that are likely to produce most of the results you're going to get? It's a little bit like a version of the old 80-20 rule. You know, what's the, what are the few things that are really going to produce the, the greatest results? And what we do in the four disciplines is we double down on those things. We, we say, how can we take those two or three actions, behaviors, if you will, to a whole new level so that when we do that, we really have leverage. So if you double down on this, you're very likely to see more movement than if you try 50 things at a different level. So, so by concentrating on this point of leverage, this action that is predictive of success on the goal and, and is something the team can influence. You can drive an outcome with less effort than you can the other way of just doing everything you can think of. Does it make, does it make sense the way I said it? Oh, it makes perfect sense. And I have to tell you, Jim, I found this concept to be so timely as over the past year, I've spoken with leaders in a number of different industries from banking to the energy sector. And it's been interesting to see how there's this strong focus for better analytics, in large part because we were all blindsided by the pandemic. And as such, there's a natural inclination to want to avoid or at least minimize such disruptions in the future. But I have to say, there hasn't been a lot of discussion around what factors can we influence that will lead to the desired outcome we're after. And I think that's a real missed opportunity as it helps people feel like we are doing more than just getting through the day to day, but we're making real progress towards achieving that vision that binds our collective efforts together. Yeah, it's a great observation. And um, if you humanize that observation for a minute, you, you know, simultaneously, you're also talking about a workforce of people um, who are 
who for the most part will tell you they're completely overwhelmed every day of their work, mm-hmm, you know, they're, mm-hmm, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, a, and a, frankly, a little bit discouraged, you know, about the state of the world and whether we're, how things are going and what their future is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a whole collection of things that are today eating away at the capacity we used to be able to give to our jobs because we weren't, we weren't worried about so many other things, you know? So, so if you humanize that observation, which I thought was brilliant, the way you said it, um, you, you get even more emphasis on the need for leaders to say, what we need to do is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's clear. Here's where we're going to focus. Here's where we're going to find some leverage so that we don't, we don't have to exhaust ourselves. We don't have to double our working hours. We don't have to do any of those things. We just need to be smarter about what we're doing. Let's, let's place our bets in, in some carefully chosen places, and then let's give it our all, and let's not try to simultaneously pursue 20 you know, measurable outcomes. Let's don't do that. Let's get really clear about what matters, and then let's get really smart about how we pursue it. That's almost an antidote to human overwhelm just right there. You know, I got to think any leader who came in tomorrow morning and said, hey, guys, you know what we're going to do from this day forward? We're going to make this really simple and we're going to get really smart about how we do it because we're all already working at a capacity. We're going to get smart about how we do it. I think everybody in the team would it would either break into tears or applause or both, you know, uh, for a leader who could bring that kind of insight to what the team is trying to accomplish. Okay, so Jim, you were talking just now about how, you know, we have to look at things in the context of our employees because they are feeling overwhelmed and we have to bring better clarity to what it is we're trying to achieve and what we want them to really focus on. It's really going to make a difference. And this really made me think of the third principle of execution, keep a compelling scoreboard, because there's a point you make here that I really like, which is that it's important for leaders to recognize that the goal here is not for you to keep score. Rather, it's to create a tool or scoreboard that allows your employees to keep score for themselves, that they can look at it and know whether they're winning and if they're not, what they need to do instead. So I'd love for you to share some of the factors that go into making such a scoreboard where it's serving to engage employees in the process because they're now driven to win in achieving their wildly important goal. Yeah, what a great question. You, and you ask it so well, my friend. Uh, so I love where we are in our conversation. If we, if we just recap real fast, discipline one was about focus and discipline two was about leverage. Well, now we come to discipline three. And, and in, in very simple terms, discipline one answers the question of what are we going to focus on at the highest level? Discipline two answers the question of how are we going to focus on it? You know, how are we going to achieve it? But discipline three, which by the way, Tanvir, I guess I should apologize for a second. This is my favorite discipline. You know, it's, it's like, I have a lot of children and grandchildren. It's like saying one of them is your favorite. I always feel a little guilty, but I, I just love this discipline. And I, I love it because I've seen what happens to teams that use it. So apology in advance, you're probably going to be able to tell it's my favorite of the four disciplines. The, the third discipline, which we refer to as the discipline of engagement, really answers the question, why? Why should I care about this? Why should I want to do this at the highest level? Why should I be striving for excellence in everything I do in this? I mean, it's really a deep question. It's in the minds of and hearts of almost everybody, you know, as they, as they go about this process. So that's one of the things I love. And the and I want to offer you a thought that I don't know if we said it exactly this way in the book, but this is certainly how we say it today, that the scoreboard is 
is more critical than most leaders imagine. Uh, in fact, uh, the greatest learning, I would, I would say, uh, of many learnings of mine of the last 15 years with Franco Covey, is that the way you keep score changes the way people perform. Now, now, I want to say that again, if you don't mind, because anybody driving their car may have just swerved to the right a little bit just now, <laughs> because leaders don't think this way. And, and I have a long tenure in leadership and a long tenure as being CEO of a really uh, successful company. I never thought this way either. In fact, I always thought the score is the thing. And the way we keep score is, oh, sure, by the way, you know, I would have said to you, hey, Tanvir, that's great. We're going to focus on the score. We'll figure something out, spreadsheet, something. We'll, you know, we'll put a little dashboard together. I would have been so dismissive of the way we keep score. Well, the last 15 years, and if it's all right with you, I love saying, you know, 300,000 teams have implemented this process around the world. What we now know is the truth is exactly the opposite. The way you keep score influences the way people play. And, and what we mean by that is something really simple. <laughs> and that is that the scoreboard can become this powerful vehicle for enabling a team to feel ownership around the results. Now, you know, I'd love to talk about the tactics of it for a minute, but I want to give you one more thought that you know, in, the, in the mind and the heart of leaders might be something worth pondering for a bit. Um, um, I think virtually everybody I meet in every organization, I've now done work in 23 countries in the last 15 years. Uh, every time I encounter a team, they, for the most part, feel that they are a valued player in a game that belongs to somebody else. And I'll tell you, this is really common in the United States where I do a lot, most of my work these days is People feel, you know, people can be helped to understand that they're a valued player, but they always have the sense they're playing someone else's game. You know, so in other words, they're willing to go a certain level, willing to go to a certain level to win the game. But, you know, on the other hand, it's not really there. It's the region's number. It's the district's number. It's my boss's number, you know. Um, so there's a gap there. Well, what closes that gap amazingly is enabling a team to feel like it's their score, not the boss's score, not the region's score, not the district score. And what does that better than anything we've ever found? <laughs> letting them have their own scoreboard. In other words, letting a team have a major voice in the architecture of the scorekeeping method whether that's a physical board that gets updated, you know, by hand and markers and, or whether you're push pinning things onto it or whether it's a digital dashboard, uh, the, the mechanism is not nearly as important as the meaning. But when people look at a scoreboard and say, hey, that's ours, that's our scoreboard, they are also then saying, and by the way, that's our score. So at the end of the day, and every leader hearing this, I hope you take this in. It's not personal. It's just human behavior. People will perform at an entirely different level to reach their score. And they will perform at a good but not the same level to reach your score. Now, I used a lot of words to say something really pretty simple. Tanvir, did, does that make sense the way I've said it or did it come across clearly? Oh, I think it did. I mean, I'm just thinking like, obviously, if you're a fan of any sport, you know how there is a scoreboard where, you know, you can walk into the game 
and you just look at it and you know instantly who's leading or what stage of the game you're in, what needs to be done by which respective team to win the game in the end. And let's please face it, if you're a sports fan, you're not on the field. You're not playing out there, but you still feel invested, right? If they win, it's your win as much as it's the players on the field's win. And for those who aren't sports fans, I'm sure those who play games on their phones, you recognize that there is a scoreboard. And again, you didn't program it. The app creator programmed it, but it's nonetheless your scoreboard. You look at it and it drives you to say, oh my God, I'm so close to completing this level, to getting that reward, to getting those bonus points. I'm going to keep pushing in. You're invested because the scoreboard tells you, you don't have to wait. Like, okay, I'm going to finish this game. I'm going to finish this round and then I'm going to wait. Let the little thing circle cycle. Okay, I'm waiting, waiting. Did I did I get it or not? You know, you you don't have to. You know immediately. I mean, I love this example you're using. It it's it matters, you know, mm-hmm. and it and it matters because it feels like yours. And and I live in a part of the country where college football is is you know really really important. And I don't <laughs> mind telling you, it's really really important to me, you know. And so I often think about this discipline from the standpoint of in the midst of a national championship game, if some genius had the idea that we were going to save electricity by only lighting up the scoreboard at the end of each quarter, you know, they just said to the whole audience, don't worry, we'll keep score, but we'll light it up at the end of each quarter. And then you'll always know right where we are. You, you would have a riot on your mm-hmm. hands. And if, you, if you turn that scoreboard off for 30 seconds, you'd it, people would go crazy because it, it matters to them. Well, the same thing can be made to be true in business, but you will never get people fanatically excited about a score that ultimately really belongs to you. You will get them fanatically excited by ensuring they understand that that score belongs to them. It's mm. theirs. So it's, a, it's, the, it's the sense of ownership around the result that really drives human performance to the highest possible level. Okay, Jim. So I want to shift our discussion to the last discipline, create a cadence of accountability. Not only because, as you write in your book, this is where we're really starting to get into the actual process of executing our plans, but because it reflects a lot of what I do in my work with leaders of discussing with them how to create more ownership in their employees for the work they do, and with it, drive more commitment and engagement to seeing the process through to a successful completion. Of course, one place I have to start such discussions is with helping leaders pivot their understanding, and with it, their employees' understanding of accountability from that notion of this is about who's to blame or this is who's going to take the fall to instead being this outlook of thinking of my colleagues, my employees are relying on me to do my part so that this can be a successful venture for all of us. And as such, the effort becomes more personal because we know people are counting on us to succeed as opposed to looking for who's going to take the blame when things go wrong. But in the context of achieving our goals, Jim, how does this fourth and final principle of execution help employees get into the game of goal attainment? What are some ways that leaders can encourage it. Yeah, I love that. You, you, you know, and really you asked that question so skillfully that you, you basically answered the question in the way you said the right things exactly. Um, I'll, I'll circle back and say them in my simple way, uh, <laughs> but I think you just nailed it, my friend, the, the way it is. Um, so let's let's say it really clearly. Discipline four is the discipline of, of accountability. 
And anybody who's not driving a car, I hope you're holding on to four words so far. They've been the, they've been the, the architecture of what we've said, focus, leverage, engagement, and now accountability in the fourth discipline. Um, and I want to be really quick to hurry on and say, you know, the fourth discipline really is the most important of the four. There's no question about it because discipline one, two, and three really set up the game, but discipline four is the game. It's the, it's the actual playing of the game. So that's why it matters so much, but here's what's different. And, and I hope it's all right. If I say really kind of radical, um, uh, think about it this way. Every organization you've ever been part of, every team you've probably ever worked for, at least in a business setting, has been driven predominantly by vertical accountability. In other words, you know, each person is accountable to their leader. And, and so most of us, Tanvir, walk around, you know, thinking, well, if my leader's happy with me, I guess everything's good. You know, it's all fine. And, and so that vertical accountability is how most organizations run almost exclusively. Well, what turns out to be true is that vertical accountability is a driver of performance, but it's very finite. In other words, you can have great vertical accountability and the performance of your team can never really go beyond everybody just doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, but nothing more, nothing innovative, nothing creative, nothing out of the box, nothing extra. They're just doing what they're supposed to. That's what vertical, or we sometimes say authority-driven accountability, that's what it gets you, is a highly compliant team. But when you change to adding in, not replacing, but adding in horizontal accountability, the, the sense of accountability each person has to the rest of the people they work with, this is what you spoke to in the way you asked the question, you supercharge the feeling of accountability. So, so think of it in a really simple way. Uh, um, everybody hears the word accountability and they think something negative. You know, I mean, I don't even know if you have a boss anymore, Tanvir, but, but in the old days, you know, if your boss said, hey, can we meet at eight o'clock tomorrow morning? We need to have an accountability meeting. There is no part of you that's going, yes, you know, <laughs> I can't no. wait. That's going to be awesome, boss. You know, there's nobody because somehow the word accountability is code for not good, you know? but it shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be because accountability when applied horizontally means trust. Accountability applied one human being to another, one teammate to another means respect. It means a sense of being in it together. And, and more than anything else, it means this sense that I will not let you down and you will not let me down. We can depend upon each other. We are a unit. You know, that's what happens when you, you, expand out of just vertical accountability and you build this sense of trust and respect between the people. Well, it turns out there is literally, gosh, at least in our experience, no practice that drives this faster into a team than the simple act of having every single person every single week say out loud to their teammates, here are the one or two most critical things I'm going to do to help us achieve our breakthrough result. Here's what I'm going to do this week. So, so imagine yourself, if you're, if you're imagining you, you're, yourself in your role with your team, for example, saying this week, um, I've got two new people on my team this week, so my commitment is to get them both trained so they're fully up to speed, onboarded, and they'll, they'll make a contribution by a week from now. 
Um, and then you come back a week later and you have really a moment of truth because you're going to say out loud to the whole team, what, you're going to say one of two things. You know? You're either going to say, hey, I said I would do this and I did it. And, or you're going to say, well, I meant to do it. And so even in the moments where you say, well, I'm meant to do it, but I didn't get it done. Nobody has to say a word to you. You feel it. You feel in that moment this clear um, reality that you have let down the people you work with. You, you made a promise that you didn't keep. And for most people in that moment, Tenvir, they decide that they will never be in this position again. <laughs> you know, all, all of us as human beings may have that happen to us once, but once it happens, it's such a real experience that we end up saying, you know what, from now on, if I make a commitment to this group, I, I'm going to make it high priority. I'm going to follow through. Well, imagine what happens when an entire team of people makes the conscious or unconscious decision that whatever I commit to do in this setting every week, I am absolutely going to do it. Well, what better way to drive trust and respect than 52 times a year you see the people you work with say, I said I would do it and I did it. I said I would do it and I did it. And I thought, you know, I mean, what could be better <laughs> if you could go home at night and, and tell your best friend, I work with the most amazing team. You know, these people, if they say they're going to do something, you don't even have to follow up. They do it. Who are you going to trust and respect more than the people who always follow through, who, who in a sense become respected and trustworthy by their actions, not by their words? You know, it's a powerful driver of, of uh, culture. But last of all, and not least of all, just last, <laughs> is when you take on a task every week and you absolutely follow through, you drive results but you drive it in a granular way. You, you're, you're attacking it every single week through personal commitments and absolute consistency. You put all that together and you've got a recipe for extraordinary breakthrough results, all from the standpoint of doing things that are simple, not easy, but simple to do. Um, that kind of becomes an antidote to you know, so much of what we're all struggling with uh, in the world today. Now, Jim, early in your book, you mentioned how the four disciplines of execution we just discussed are not just based on the research your team did with hundreds of companies, but also from your experiences implementing this four DX model with thousands of companies. So I'm curious to hear what was a common pitfall or blind spot that tripped up many leaders when they were trying to employ these four disciplines of execution? And what insights did it reveal about how leaders understand strategy and execution? Oh, man, I was so hopeful we, you might ask me a question like this. This, this, is now, <laughs> this is the deeper level, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. You, you clearly are going to the deeper level. And I'm so honored to answer this question. And I'm going to be faithful. I want to I answer the question with the same level of candor that you just asked it, because uh, that, was, that was marvelous. Yeah, and so I just say out loud, uh, the single biggest obstacle any team anywhere faces implementing this methodology is the that it has to be modeled by the leader. So in other words, leaders, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of leaders going to hear this now and feel that this is heaviness and it's not meant to be, but it might be challenging. We are the high water mark. In other words, if the leaders are willing to model the behaviors that you and I've just spent a few minutes talking about, the teams will follow. But the implementations of 40X that never quite get off the ground 
are the ones where the leader feels that the four disciplines are good things for other people to do, but not for themselves. So in other words, they're not willing to lead by example. They're not willing to be focused. They're not willing to be engaged. They're not willing to be accountable and have follow through. They think those are good behaviors for the people at the lower levels, but not themselves. When that's the mindset of a leader, we almost never have extraordinary results because very few teams, gosh, I hope I say this well, Tim, you help me if I don't. I've never actually once seen a team whose level of commitment to quality and to excellence would exceed that of their leader over time. You know, you might have a brief moment when a team rises up and does something great, despite not having a leader that has those qualities. But most of the time, teams rise to the level of the leadership example they're given every day. They just model that, you know, and and in a very real sense, they have a right to assume. I think I think every person in a company has the right to say to their leader, <laughs> the level of excellence you demonstrate, should, I should be able to take that as an example of what, what is expected here. The level of passion for the company you have, I should be able to say that's the mark, that's the standard. So if a leader wants to raise the level of these kinds of things in their team, and, and I'd say this again from the valley, not from the mountaintop. The most effective way to do it is to raise your own game first. You know, be a leader who clearly knows what's most important. Be a leader who clearly follows through. If you say you're going to do something, go and do it. Who clearly acknowledges that you are not the driving force behind this success, that the people themselves, you know, your, your front line is actually the one producing your bottom line. Make sure that's clear to everybody. Do those things yourself and you'll have a team that will naturally follow your leadership and, and fail to do that. And it will always be a forced march and it'll always be less than successful. And uh, I hope you don't mind me saying it kind of personally. I mean, I've I have the privilege today of talking about things that I learned the hard way, you know, by not doing them, by not by not being where I would would have wanted to be. Uh, and there, there's some of the things that I I guess have the most energy in my voice when I'm when I'm talking to someone who's so skillful at asking questions, you know, like you. Um, but but I do think it's a great truth, uh, and I, and I think the um, the idea that we are the standard setters is a powerful idea that, that helps every leader to embrace that, you know, uh, helps every leader to, to, um, to feel the responsibility, you know, to be a living example of everything I want my team to do. Um, why not? We should, we should do that. Shouldn't we as leaders? And I'm not saying be perfect because nobody is. And I'm not saying be, be excellent every single day. I'm not even saying that, but I'm saying don't drop the standard be willing to accept the responsibility that even though you're imperfect and a growing and evolving person, you have a responsibility to do everything you can to represent the best of what you want to see your people do. So if, if you can be a model of excellence and you can absolutely reinforce with every person that works for you or follows you, that they matter, what they're doing is important and that, and that you value it and appreciate it. You do those two things alone, you can take your team to, a, to a, an entirely different level. And then you add in the intelligence of the four disciplines and its analytics and its methods. And, you know, of course, I'm highly biased about this, Tim Bureau, of course, but, but I think you got to, you know, you just got a formula for supercharged success. And, 
course, we have stories from all over the world that would validate that as well. But my, I'm sure my bias is very clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could tell you, Jim, it was a, a fascinating read. And, and as I mentioned, there were parts which certainly reflected what I've heard from leaders about the challenges they're facing, as well as what I've been teaching leaders through my workshops and keynotes on how to not just engage, but empower their employees to take ownership in their vision and goals. So I appreciated talking with you, Jim, about these four disciplines of execution and how they can help leaders make tangible progress while navigating through that whirlwind of our day-to-day realities. Well, thank you, my friend. And I'll tell you, last of all, it's been an honor to be, I don't know that I've ever been asked questions that were so insightful and that revealed such clear preparation. So I'm deeply honored by that. And uh, and what a privilege to be with someone like you who puts such time and care into a podcast like this. So thank you, my friend. I hope I see you again someday and we can have a follow-up conversation on how things are going. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Jim. And likewise, I'd enjoy the opportunity to meet with you again and talk more about a subject we both clearly care a lot about and enjoy talking about. And again, I want to thank you for this insightful and fascinating conversation about these four disciplines of execution. I know our listeners have gained a lot of insights, if not also a lot of food for thought. So if you'd like to learn more about Jim and his book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our podcast you can go to our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC, where you'll find links to subscribe to our podcast on all the major streaming platforms. And if you could, it'd be great if you could rate and review my podcast as well, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. I'm Tavernasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Leadership Biz Cafe.